uh, don't have a Bible with you and you'd like one to follow along, if you pop your hand in the air, uh, one of our stewards uh, would love to bring you a Bible. So pop your hand up and keep it up there until you get one and they are coming to you. Uh, If you're new to church, uh, reading and explaining the Bible is a big part of what we do in this church family. That's because we believe the words in this book are not man-made, but God-given. They are timeless in their instruction, uh, eye-opening in their subject, and trustworthy in their reliability. The most famous thing that Jesus ever did was die on a cross, and we find ourselves in this particular passage just three days shy of that event. Now, some of the religious leaders of the day confused in their expectations as to what this promised king was going to be like, and actually pretty jealous of Jesus as well, are bustling around him like a media scrum. They're agitating with their questions, eager for some statement to ruin him with. So the trainee Pharisees in recent weeks have asked about taxation, and Jesus said, give to God what is God's. Uh, The Sadducees asked about the resurrection, and he said, God is the God of the living. Well, now it's the time of the expert lawyer of the Pharisees. Let's see what his question is from verse 34 we'll read. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together, one of them. An expert in the law tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Let's pray together. Our Father, in the book of Deuteronomy, you show us that the words written in this book should also be written on our hearts. Not just read, but loved and not just love, but obeyed. Help us to do that as we study this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, self-obsession is fast becoming the epidemic of our time. So say a billion uh, cultural analysts and social scientists. Uh, One of them, writing in Time magazine, said of the amount of self-promotion that we see on social media, just to give you one example, says, never before have people been so self-infatuated. It is a problem. But you knew that, didn't you? I mean, we have had the privilege of witnessing the rise of the selfie generation. Uh, Gone are the days when people, when a camera is held up in front of you, you would say cheese. Nobody says cheese anymore. You can't say cheese when you're practicing your duck face pout or concentrating on your teapot arm. Just doesn't work. Anyway, I'm not gonna do that ever again. But there's a newer phenomenon that proves that our problem with self-infatuation is even worse. The mirror selfie. The mirror selfie, have you heard of this? Where you look at yourself on your phone while taking a photo of yourself looking at yourself in a mirror. It's just wrong on so many levels. Nothing says I love myself quite as much as the mirror selfie, does it? I mean, I don't know why, but people tend to do it in the bathroom and you've got like your toothbrush and your dirty towel hanging over the back of the rail. It doesn't make sense. These are the kind of things that make Jean Twenge, the author of Generation Me, say we need to see as a society the dangers of self-love. 
and she offers a solution. We need the story of Narcissus retold in every generation. Remember him? He's the guy, the gorgeous man in Greek mythology who saw his reflection in a pool, fell in love with it, couldn't tear himself away from it, and eventually drowned in it. He died looking at a reflection of himself. And the author there says, this is a parable of the dangers of self-love. But I think we need something more than that. We need something more than someone saying, this is the self-infatuation, self-love that looks like this is wrong. We need someone to tell us what's right. We need someone to tell us exactly where we ought, what we ought to do with love and where we ought to direct our love. And that's exactly what Jesus does in this passage. He doesn't say, stop loving yourself. He says, the only way to love yourself rightly and to love others better is to love God the best. The Pharisees asking this question really need to hear this, as much as we do. They were, if you like, the selfie generation of their day. Uh, in Matthew 23, 5, Jesus says of them, everything they do is done for people to see. And here they come with a question in Matthew 22 for Jesus. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? What's the greatest thing the law has ever said, Jesus? If you could pick out one command and say, that's the one that sums up what life is all about, what would you say? Which is the greatest commandment in the law? Of course, they're trying to trap him. They're, not look, they're looking to test his orthodoxy. They're looking for a reason to hang him. But Jesus' response tells them and us what we were made for and where we're getting things wrong. And his response really just forms the natural structure of this sermon today. Love God and love others. That's our two-part outline. So love God. In fact, love God best. Verses 37 and 38. Look with me, verses 37. Uh, Jesus tells, this is where Jesus tells us what he considers to be the first and the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Now, there are 613 laws in the Old Testament law, 248 positive, 365 negative. But Jesus says, love God is the first commandment in terms of priority and the greatest commandment in terms of excellency or worthwhileness in terms of obedience. And in saying that, Jesus shows us that loving God is what we were made for. Loving God is the best thing that anyone can do. Why? Why is loving God the best thing we can do? I think there are two main reasons, though there are more. One, because of who he is. I mean, if love is something that we have for, and give to someone or something of great value to us, then who has greater value or greater worth than God, the supreme being over all the universe? God who in himself is unmistakably powerful in all that he has made, perfectly good in the entirety of his character, unwaveringly kind in every single one of his actions, outstandingly flawless in his perfections, and unbelievably selfless with his love. Who is like him? He is the most incredible person that you could ever know, the loveliest person that you could ever meet. And the Bible says that he in himself is love. God is love, which tells us that actually 
He is so supreme and so glorious in his love that his love and his character is the standard that defines what love actually is. Not your romantic comedies, not the music you listen to, God. There is no one in your life and nothing in your life that compares to him. Therefore, there is nothing more right and proper than to fix your love on him, to appreciate him, to adore him. Now, loving God is the best thing we can do, not just because of who he is, but also because of what he's done. Because God has not kept his love quiet, has he? God has not kept his love to himself. He has demonstrated his love in a way that makes the reality of it unquestionable. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 tells us that God demonstrates, or billboards if you like, his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the perfect demonstration of the love of God is the cross of Christ. That's where we look. If ever we doubt, you know, I'm just not sure if God loves me. Look to the cross every time. It's the, the tangible reminder. This is why we take bread and wine as well at communion. A tangible, tangible reminder of the gospel, his forgiveness, his immense love for us. And we need it because God in himself created us to live in loving relationship with him. But in our sin, we love ourselves first. We, get, we give our love and adoration to something of much lesser worth than God. We, the, we worship, the worship we ought to give God, we give to ourselves. And so we become idolaters. And to our, not just a loving God, but a righteous God, that is not right. And his anger burns against that particular sin, because that's what it is. But the good news of the gospel is that in Jesus Christ, he did not treat us as our sins deserve. In love, he sent his son to be the savior of the world, to die on a cross, to deal with sin, declare his love. And that's why we say, nothing says I love you like the cross of Christ. And since love, by its very nature, is intensely relational, it ought to be reciprocated. And this is why, above all else, God commands us to love him best. So Jesus doesn't just tell us what to do. He tells you how to do it. Love God with everything you've got. With everything that you've got. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Now, we often read that and think, okay, there are three different categories when it comes to loving God. Let's break them down. Let's figure out how to do it. Well, in a sense, you can. The heart, well, what is that all about? Well, the romantics say, oh, that's where all the fuzzy feelings are. Or the scientists or anatomists would say, that's the muscular component of the circulatory system. But the Bible says, that's your control center. Everything you do and think and are is an overflow of what is in your heart. It's a control center. The soul, people say, I'm not really sure what that is actually, but it's not something to be confused about. It's everything about you that makes you you. It's your being. Praise the Lord, oh my soul, and all that is within me, praise his holy name. You get it. 
You know, read these verses that contain the word. They explain what the soul is. The mind, well, that's about our intellect. That's about what we think. Yes, intellect, meditation, all of this. Our mental faculty is to be employed in loving God. But let's not try or waste too much time trying to think through how we divide these out. These are overlapping categories. And let's not get so caught up with those words of heart, soul, and mind. There are another three words in that verse that really should be given our due attention. All, all, and all. You see, the main thing is that God commands that we love him with everything we've got. Not just parts. Not a bit of yourself but all of yourself. And the question is, are we? Is this how we love God? Brothers and sisters, sometimes we want to love God with just a bit of us, don't we? We feel the temptation to love other things or compartmentalize our lives when Jesus demands our all. Do we say, God, I'm willing to obey you in all your holy word, just not in the bit that stops me doing what I want to do. So we're selective. Or God, I'm willing to love you with all my body, but just not with my sexual organs. I want to do with them what I want to do. Or God, I'm willing to love you with all my money. No, wait. Uh, or worse. What we can do is we, can, we want to two-time God and bring another lover into the relationship. And oh, we try to keep them apart, but that doesn't work. I think the fact that Jesus is saying this to Pharisees who think that they love God but clearly don't, is a warning to us, right? It's really easy to fall into their error. But loving God for them was, was really a way of loving themselves. When you look into it, they knew their, this commandment. Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy 6. It was well known to them. It was their Sunday school memory verse. They would recite this every morning and every evening. They would, it would be the first words that they hear at the start of every synagogue service. They would even like stitch little scrolls with this verse into their garments and wear it in what, something around their head, a little leather box called a phylactery. Or, you know, they, they stick it in there thinking they're going to imbibe it or something. But by rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ, which is exactly what they're doing in this passage, they're showing that they don't really love God. They're rejecting, rejecting the God who is love and his son sent in love who will die as a full expression of God's love right in front of them. Proving they love themselves. And the question for all of us is, well, what can we do? Okay, we repent and we believe the good news again. We preach the gospel to ourselves. We rest on the fact that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us and purify us from all unrighteousness. He forgives us for our half-hearted love, doesn't he? Jesus died for that, brothers and sisters, so let's not wallow in guilt and shame. But let's work positively on the kind of things that can help fuel our affections and help us follow his commands more, help us to love him more. So we can, yes, remember the gospel. That's a key way to fuel our affection for him, isn't it? That despite our waywardness, God loves us. And what shall separate you from that love? Nothing, says Romans 8. Nothing will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. 
The other thing that we can do, of course, to fuel our affection is to make the most of the means of grace. What are the ways that God in his word has said, do these things and my, with my spirit in your heart and I will bless you in these areas. God's word does it, so read it. Come and hear it preached, well done. You know, study it with other people in small group, help to sharpen one another and teach one another in these small groups. Songs do it as well, singing good truth with great joy helps. Fill your house, fill your ears with good music. And not missing church will help. God's people together rejoicing in the words helps it hit home. And then follow his instructions. Don't just fuel your affections, follow his instructions. Obedience is the expression of our love for God. If we love God and love his word, we will love to live it out. And Jesus, of course, himself said, if you love me, you will obey what I command. So obedience is important. And the third thing we should do actually is pray for love to grow. I don't know if you've ever noticed just how often New Testament prayers in particular contain this call to pray for love and to grow in our love for God. So Philippians 1, my prayer is that your love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. See how those things connect? Knowledge, depth of insight, and love. Fuel your affections by growing in knowledge. Or Ephesians 3, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, there's the gospel, may have power together with all the saints, all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love. So not only founded on it, but go deeper into it. To grasp it all the more and every day be wowed just that little bit more by how amazing the Lord God is. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, Jesus says in no uncertain terms that the greatest command in this book is to love God. Is to love God. And that means that Gene Twenge was actually right. The, the, most, the, the narcissistic self-love of this generation is indeed dangerous, but it's more dangerous than we realize. Because it's really a great evil in God's sight to become our own supreme love in place of him. By doing so, we not only reject God, we redefine love on our own terms and not on his. And he says, you can't do that. If love is not defined by what he has declared it to be and instead becomes what you just wish it to be, it's not love. I don't know what you want to call it, but the Bible actually says it's not love. In fact, what the Bible says is that's offensive to God. And not loving God and redefining love by your own standards is essentially the epitome of rejection. And unless people say sorry for sins and turn to him for forgiveness, his offense at that sin will result in judgment. And I want to be really, really clear about that with you. There's nothing more important than this. Nothing more serious than spurning God's love. It's really serious. 
The cross of Christ serves as a permanent reminder of his love for sinners like us so that even though we may say, wow, that's me. I have, I have, I'm an offense to him. I've rejected and rebelled against him. I've redefined what, what should be set by his standard. The thing I really want you to hear is that while we were still sinners, even in our rebellion and rejection, Christ died for us. That God made him who had no sin to become that very sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, forgiven, cleansed. That's what his love's all about. That's why he sent his son, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, John 3.17 says, but to save the world through him. And won't it be better to see his open arms on that day when Christ returns rather than his judgment? Confess your sin. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. That's the right way to truly love yourself is to love God best. Make it a priority of yours to love him. But Jesus also goes on to say love Others too, in fact, this is the right way to truly love yourself. To love others, love God best, and then you will love others better. Look what it says in verse 39. The second, of, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So in what sense is this second commandment, if you like, uh, like the first well, it's, it's like it in two ways, mainly. Um, loving your neighbor is, in fact, a way of loving God. Since God commands that we love our neighbor, obeying God's command then is really just a mark of our love for him. So we choose to love our neighbor as a means of loving him. It's quite simple, really. And loving neighbor is also a way of being like God. For the Bible tells us that he loves the world tells us that he loves our neighbors. He loves those who are made in his image and has compassion on them despite the, the treatment that he gets from them. And that makes his love then the pattern of our own loving. The second is like it, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. So Jesus tells us in this not only what to do, he tells us how to do it. He did it in the first section. Love God. How? With all your heart, soul, and mind. He tells us in this section, love your neighbor. How? As yourself. Well, that is a high bar, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I am seriously committed to my own good. I'm good at looking after myself in sinful ways. I make sure that there's a roof over my head. I make sure that this body is well fed. I even make sure that this body has a sufficient number of snacks that I don't really tell anyone else about. I always make sure this hair is gelled. I always, you know, there's always a lot going on. I look after myself well. I don't, I don't neglect myself. I don't think you do either. There are lots of ways that we like to look after ourselves. I don't know whether it's saying, Oh, you know, let's, let's go out. Let's take the children out for a nice walk this morning. And then, you know, completely ready to back that up with the fact that there's a football match on at three o'clock and I'd quite like to watch that. You know, there are lots of ways that we look out for ourselves. And it's embarrassing, really, 
And Narcissus lives on in every one of us. But this is the point that Jesus is trying to make. Loving ourselves, actually, is what we do best. Forgetting the sinful aspect of it, just in the general everydayness of looking after yourself, making sure you're well-fed, you're well-protected, all this kind of stuff. It's what we do best, and Jesus says, love for your neighbor must be at least as strong as the love that you have for yourself. Love for your neighbor must at least be as strong as the love that you have for yourself. And that's a challenge. I mean, never mind that sinful self-indulgence. If you care enough about yourself to make sure you eat and drink, if you care enough to make sure you're kept safe and alive, that you look both ways when you cross the road, whatever, if you care enough about your society for the people that you elect, you're going to care about others in the same way. Care about people. Care about society. Care about the marginalized and oppressed. Speak out on behalf of those who are crushed, who don't have a voice. And Jesus had said already earlier in this gospel of Matthew in chapter 7 and verse 12, do to others as you would have them do to you. And do it with the same zeal, with the same energy, the same creativity and perseverance. And this is a great challenge for all of us. For Christians, as we live and move around this city, we are called to love others as we love ourselves. It's a big challenge. Galatians 6.10 says, let us do good to all people. The word of God is clear in telling us that everybody is our neighbor. When this uh, same commandment is, uh, is told by Jesus and offered by Jesus' teaching in Luke chapter 10, earlier on in his ministry in a different context, he then tells the parable of the Good Samaritan to explain that this one, that people in Israel might well reject and sneer at is actually demonstrating what it looks like to love your neighbor. There's nothing gets in the way. No, no racial inequality, no gender bias, none of that. Nothing gets in the way of us showing this love. Everybody is our neighbor. No one is excluded. Love people from the lovable to the unlovely. So rich people are our neighbors. Poor people are our neighbors. People who are rude to you, they're your neighbors. We are to love them in, in every other circumstance that you can think of. And do it knowing that when Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, he added no asterisk and no footnotes, no, no qualifications to this. We are to love and so show God's love as we do. And of course, we're not only to love people out there in our city, in our world, in our workplace, in our schools. We are to love one another deeply in here, in our, amongst our church family. Because Galatians 6.10, I shortchanged you. It says, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Well, what does this look like? How are we to love each other deeply? How are we to break through casual relationships that can typify congregations and meaningfully interact in each other's lives. There should be no one in this church who leaves feeling unloved. No one. And yet in our selfishness, sometimes we prefer to just ignore the person who's sitting over there that actually they're sitting on their own drinking a cup of coffee afterwards 
oh, but it just feels awkward going up to someone and talking to them. Well, no, it doesn't matter. Love that person. Put that sinful thought to death. Go and talk to the person and be an encourager. Demonstrate love. What would you do if that was you sitting there on your own? Do to others as you would have them do to you. It's so practical. Replace that scenario with a billion others. How are we to love one another deeply in this place? So your family's going through a really hard time. How, do you want, how would you want people to look after you? What would you want someone to do when you're in that situation? Do that to the family who are struggling. I love what Jerry Bridges says about this, actually, in his book, Discipline of Grace. He takes the love passage from 1 Corinthians 13 and turns it into application in, in obeying this command to love your neighbor as yourself. So he takes verses 4 and 5 of 1 Corinthians 13, which says, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. And this is what he does with it. He puts it into everyday situations. He says, I resolve really to, I'm patient with you because I love you and I want to forgive you. So you love people by being patient with them. I'm going to be kind to you because I love you and I want to help you. I do not envy your possessions or your gifts because I love you and I want you to have the best. I do not boast about my attainments because I love you and I want to hear about yours. I'm not proud because I love you. I'm not proud because I love you and I want to esteem you before myself. I'm not rude because I love you and I care about your feelings. I'm not self-seeking because I want to love you and want to meet your needs above my own. And I am not easily angered by you because I love you and find joy in overlooking your offense. And I do not keep a record of your wrongs because I love you and because I actually believe that God was right when he said, love covers over a multitude of sins. This is why we have other passages saying like, let no malice or envy or strife or sin get in the way of that. Bear with each other in love. Let love cover over those sins. But on no account, brothers and sisters, let our love for each other diminish. For Jesus said, by this love, all men shall know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. See how important it is? It's not just important for how we interrelate. It's important for the message we proclaim as one. So let Narcissus die. Please put the iPhone down. The love that we have for ourselves as we practice it in a worldly way is corrupt and needs corrected. And let's heed Christ's message today as the fundamental rule for our life today and every day that the only way to love ourselves rightly and love others better is to love God the best. And by his grace, he'll help us do it. Let's pray together. Forgive us, Lord, for 
this sinful self-love for our disordered affections. Whatever it takes, Lord, increase our capacity to love and correct the direction of our love so that we love you most and as a result, love others better. And may more know of your love as a result of your work in us today. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.